I'm Gordon Stewart, and this is episode 14 of Tales from Weird Scotland. In 1952, Bella Lugosi, once the meteoric star of Hollywood's golden age of horror features, met his match in a middle-aged drag act. Lugosi had travelled to London for a theatre production of Dracula, but this had apparently struggled and he needed cash to return home to the United States. Lugosi was offered a role in a budget comedy horror thriller, a loose reworking or rip-off of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. The film, Mother Riley Meets the Vampire, was to be the last in a truly inexplicably long run of Mother Riley features, with the comic actor Arthur Lucan dragging up as a strange elderly woman and starring in the title role. With the advertising slogan of It's enough to make a bat laugh. The film was a complete flop and would be the last of the Mother Riley films ever made. The bat did not laugh. Nor did many other folk. Lugosi returned to the USA, B-movies and relative obscurity. The film was distributed to cinemas, but being poorly written and performed, and with a plot that was cobbled together, it was doomed to fail. But not all vampire films have been such commercial or artistic flops. The career of Christopher Lee would never be the same again after he donned the opera cloak and fangs four years later, although, like Lugosi, he would later lament of being typecast. The Hammer horror films have remained popular ever since, in a kitsch kind of way. Softcore romps like The Vampire Lovers, Taste the Deadly Passion of the Blood Nymphs, Lust of a Vampire, and Twins of Evil, adding to the high ripeness cheese factor, as well as the sex appeal of the 1970s. From Nosferatu to Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the Twilight Saga, vampires have been a constant, vivid, sexy part of popular culture around the globe. Vampires seduce, they terrify. Bram Stoker's 1897 Dracula has cast a long, deep shadow over popular culture ever since. Accounts of real vampires can be found throughout the folk tales and superstitions of many lands. In Scotland, one of the earliest accounts of a vampire zombie monk in Melrose dates back to the 12th century. We featured this in our episode 5 as part of our A to Z of Weird Scotland. Vampires, however, do not generally feature in Scottish folktales or weird histories, until recently, and were not a feature of traditional folk belief or stories here. In 1954, however, 
something remarkable happened in Glasgow that was to terrify the local people, make headlines around the world, and ultimately change the law. The second city of the empire, the dear green place, Glasgow has had a long and often turbulent history. It has the finest medieval cathedral in Scotland, which escaped the Protestant wreckers of the Reformation, but the city was decimated by the bombers of the Second World War and urban planners of the 60s. It is a vast and sprawling place, like a Scottish Chicago, of long streets on a grid-like pattern, and even boasts the fourth oldest subway in the world. It was at the heart of Scotland's creation of the tobacco, cotton and slave-trading wealth of the 18th century, but would be the scene of agitation for equality and political reform in the 19th and early 20th centuries, when the Red Clydesiders looked close to revolution and when imperial tanks patrolled the streets. From the early sanctuary of St Mungo, and the palaces and tombs of the ancient Britonic kings of Strathclyde, to the power of empire, of shipbuilding and a bustling port, the long-lost dear green place has many stories to tell. It's a wonderful place. In 1954, parts of Glasgow were still marred by the war with blackened, tall, damp tenement buildings, slum areas and the architecture of the Industrial Revolution. In the Gorbals, a densely populated working class area which crowded around the factories and the southern necropolis cemetery was a mostly poor yet vibrant community made famous or infamous by the 1935 no Mean City, a novel which told of the Razor Gangs and Glasgow's archetypal hardmen. The clanging trams and buses slowly made their way along crowded streets as the autumn night grew sharper, grew darker. Every neighbourhood with its shops and pubs and football allegiances was packed with light and colour and noise. The ministers, or the priests, each knew their neighbourhoods well, and everyone knew everyone else's business. And the children played in the streets, or wherever they could find an empty place. The Southern Necropolis Cemetery was opened in 1840 to deal with the growing numbers of interments required as the city grew ever larger. Sir Thomas Lipton of Lipton's Tea and Alexander Thompson, the architect of so many famous city landmarks, both lie within. The Southern Necropolis, different to the larger, older Necropolis near Glasgow Cathedral, is a sprawling affair of small Gothic monuments and stones. Extended twice, the graveyard replaced the old Gorbals burial ground, 
which had become full following the mass cholera outbreaks of 1832. Originally intended to provide a dignified and inexpensive resting place for Glasgow's workers, it became a burial place for all classes and former residents of the city. Some quarter of a million Glaswegians lie within this city of the dead. By 1954, the area had suffered much decline, and the first signs of the collapse of the industrial heartland of Scotland were beginning to emerge, and it was here that one of the strangest Scottish tales of the 20th century would take place. One night, the police received a call asking them to go urgently to the southern necropolis as a disturbance was taking place. Police constable Alex Deeprose arrived at the large castle-like gate to the graveyard and walked through the large open gates into the normally dark and empty cemetery. But tonight, he began to see shapes silhouetted in the darkness by the bursts of light blasting from the surrounding factories. He began to glimpse little figures darting about and was to be confronted by hundreds of local children. Some were in their early teens, many were younger and some barely even able to toddle. And they were armed with sticks and branches, saucepans, dogs on ropes, crosses, and even axes and knives, and all were in a feverish state of fear and excitement. The noise was unbearable. They were hurrying around the graveyard, dodging between the tall Gothic crosses and slabs of the tombs, seemingly searching for something in small groups. They ran frantically up and down the ranks of graves, and occasionally he would hear cries of alarm or excitement, he couldn't tell which. Against the darkness of the autumn evening, every now and then, the nearby steelworks would issue horrible, strange, metallic shrieks of machinery, while eerie sparks and flashes briefly lit the skyline in red and black, red and black, red and black. The flames and smoke and smell of sulphur added to the apocalyptic scene he was watching now in horror. In the red glow from the factory he could see figures outlined, red then black, strange shadows stretching towards the trees and the darkness beyond the high walls. There he is! he heard a boy cry, followed by shrill shouting and shrieks. Then. No, there he is, from further away. And was that, was that a dark, hooded figure turning towards him? A figure with folded wings turning to look at him? It was an angel, carved, a stone angel on a tomb, that was all her face seeming to move as the flashes from the different factories shone in turn. 
He made his way further into the ranks of tombs, towards a group of children, asking what on earth they thought they were playing at. They were all, he was to learn, hunting for a vampire. The children replied that they were here, all of them, to hunt for the Gorbals vampire. You can imagine the look in the policeman's face. As more police officers began to arrive, more details would emerge in the darkness. Deadly serious, the children explained, that in the graveyard was lurking a seven-foot-tall vampire with iron teeth, who had kidnapped and eaten two boys. No one knew which boys had fallen victim to the fiend, but they all knew someone else who knew them. Perhaps at this point, the police officer's blood ran a little colder. Only after much arguing, the intervention of a local school's headmaster and the beginning of rain, did the children reluctantly go home until the next night when they returned again. And the night after that, although the numbers were by now dwindling. Anxious parents asked the police and the school authorities what was causing this panic, what had happened to the two missing boys, and what was to be done about it. The national newspapers picked up the story, questions were asked in Parliament, and the law was changed. But just what had occurred? A rumour, it appeared had started in the playground of the local school that two boys had vanished playing in the graveyard. Children in the surrounding streets would play there all the time given the lack of open spaces, so that was not surprising in itself. But they had disappeared and, apparently from nowhere, the story of the vampire with iron teeth had emerged from the mist. Increasingly filled with hysteria, the local children worked themselves into a frenzy, determined to protect themselves and to avenge the death of the unknown boys by destroying the vampire. And, as the police had seen, their numbers grew and grew. The names of the two missing boys were never discovered. It's unlikely they had ever existed at all. A surprising alliance of disparate groups claimed they all knew the root cause of this alarming event and hysteria. Imported American horror comic books, one of which, it was noted, recently included the story The Vampire with the Iron Teeth. This was what the loose association of Christians, Communists and the National Teachers Union all claimed. Upheld by the local Member of Parliament, Debates were held at Westminster and, ultimately, in 1955, the Children and Young Persons Harmful Publications Act was passed, which banned magazines or comics deemed harmful to children, including content which included incidents of a repulsive or horrible nature. It still stands today. Was it that simple? Probably, although the availability of imported American comics would have been very thin on the ground in the garbles. Possibly the influence of the cinema 
more likely, although perhaps that's still not entirely the reason why this hysteria started. Maybe there's an older folk memory. In the 19th century, Glasgow children had formed gangs looking for the monstrous figure of Spring-Heeled Jack, who had terrified the peoples of London, Manchester and parts of Scotland as far back as 1837. Another figure of fright, also sought by brave bands of children in earlier times, was Jenny Ironteeth, a Caledonian version of the better-known Jenny Greenteeth from Lancashire and Merseyside. Whether a witch or a sea hag, or even a sea witch, the folklore has become jumbled over time. But still, at heart, a child-killing or child-eating phantom that needed to be sought out and destroyed. Very different and distant from the ancient river god or goddess they probably started their ethereal lives as. There are still folk alive who remember the Gorbals' vampire panic, including some of the little boys who, armed to the teeth, bravely searched between the graves. Did they believe in the vampire? Of course. Did they find him? Well, some have said that the vampire was indeed hunted down and killed, never to trouble the Gorbals again. Thanks for listening. Sweet dreams. That was Gordon Stewart. This episode was written by Gordon Stewart. Check out his blog at borderlandscotland.wordpress.com. This episode was recorded, produced and radiophonically designed by me, Nick Cole Hamilton. For more weirdness, follow our Twitter account, at TalesWeird. Weird spelled W-Y-R-D. This is a You Better Run Media production. Join us again soon for more tales from Weird Scotland.